Everybody, welcome to Stuff Said, the show where I, Greg Shegel, working cartoonist, talk about comics, cartooning, and more, sometimes with guests, sometimes all alone. This is a with guests show. Guests, plural, because uh, this episode is a panel discussion. More on that in a second. Back for another episode. This one, just in time for people who are not possibly at San Diego Comic-Con, which is happening this weekend, uh, but still want a taste of being at a convention because this episode is a recording of a panel that I moderated and held at Heroes Con 2017 this past June, last month. I submitted a bunch of panels in advance of Heroes Con, and they chose of those submissions one panel called Comics Aren't Real. And if you listen to past shows, that might sound familiar in that I held and recorded a panel of the exact same name at Emerald City Comic Con in 2014. Uh, And again, if you listened, you heard that one on episode 48 of this show. This is the same premise, the panel, uh, that is, uh, but with an all new, all different group of of, uh, panelists um, among them. Well, not among them. The actual panel consisted of... Ryan Brown, Joey Weiser, Ulysses Farinas, Megan Levins, and last but certainly not least, Alan Davis. Um, if you've listened to this show at all, there's a better than average chance you've heard me talk about Alan Davis and his work, uh, about how he was the first artist to whom I attached a name to his style and looked for his work specifically, about how I, how uh, when I when I wanted to figure out how to draw the female figure better. I worked on reverse engineering by tracing the work he was doing in a Captain Britain collection, the work he did in a Captain Britain collection, Uh, how when he was doing covers on on Flash, it got me to buy the Flash, which got me to, well, which introduced me to Mark Wade's work. Uh, So basically having him on the panel uh, was an honor and a thrill for sure. Uh, I tried to, to maintain a certain degree of professionalism and not ignore the other panelists. I, I apologize if I did, but I don't think I did. After I listened back to, to the panel, I think I think everybody got pretty equal time. I, I think if, if I did, if any of these panelists are listening to this and I did give you short shrift, I apologize. Uh, just know that um, you were up against Alan Davis. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I refrained from gushing too dramatically but it was pretty awesome and, and i'll talk more about alan and the panel and the putting the, putting the panel together on the show notes that you can read at stuffsaidshow.com where you can also uh, get all past episodes and sign up for my monthly mailing list and donate to support the show and uh and like that uh before i play the recording uh, some business aside from the business i just gave you um, my books, Picks, One Weirdest Weekend, and Picks, Two Super for School, both published by Image Comics, are available wherever books are sold. Comic shops, online retail, brick-and-mortar bookstores can order copies for you. Uh, 
you can you can maybe get them at your local library or ask your local library to carry them. That would be great if you could do that. Uh, I think a, a lot of them are available, or not a lot of them. I believe the books are available in a lot of libraries via the Hoopla app. So if you have that, check out the Pix books. It, it'll be free. And then the library will be like, ooh, people are checking out this book. That'd be great. Um, you can also get the books on the comic website, pixcomic.com, P-I-X-C-O-M-I-C. Uh, you can order those if you want them signed from the, the web store there. You can also read the first chapters of each book at pixcomic.com. Coming up for me, uh, this episode is coming out on Friday, the 21st of July. On Saturday, the 22nd of July, I will be at ValCon in Valley Cottage, New York at the Valley Cottage Library. So if you're in that vicinity, come by. It's free to get in. I will be there with books and posters. And I'm not sure what else I have to pack for that show uh, in the next 24 hours, I guess. Um, On August 5th, Saturday, August 5th, I will be at the comic book shop in Wilmington, Delaware for their Kids Day, benefiting the Ronald McDonald House of Delaware. So if you're in that area, in the Delaware, Philadelphia region, come on by. I will be there. Uh, with other kids comics creators uh, having a good time I'll be doing a a intro to figure drawing presentation as well so if you want to come by for that go to uh, thecomicbookshop.com for more details uh, in September I'll be part of the Brooklyn Book Festival's Children's Day Saturday September 16th I'm moderating a panel and participating in an illustrator showdown on that day and September 22nd to 24th, I will be at Baltimore Comic-Con in the Kids Love Comics Pavilion. I have submitted some panel ideas to them. We'll see if any of those get picked up. And if they do, hopefully I can record them and release them as episodes. And speaking of recordings released as episodes, here, without further ado, is Comics Aren't Real, Volume 2, recorded live at Heroes Con 2017, on Saturday, June 17th at 12.30 p.m. We've got a taste of reality, which we're going to abandon moving forward. Uh, this panel is called Comics Aren't Real. Uh, it is a celebration slash discussion of the unreal things in comics that make them great. Uh, be it characters, stories, uh, unique panel shapes, and tools of comics, word balloons, sound effects, those sorts of things, uh, colorful costumes, other worlds, varied art styles, and whatever else uh, we come up with in the next hour. Uh, so, for instance, as, a, as an example of what I'm talking about, uh, I submit that people do not like Batman because he's realistic. They like him because of his uh, gadgets that don't exist in real life, his costume that, if it's a superhero costume is uh, colorful and not realistic in any real capacity. Uh, The car, I know they make them for the movies, but, you know, talking about the comic book version of the car. Uh, So that's that's sort of where we're starting from. Uh, My name is Greg Schiegel. I am the creator of PIX, the kids' graphic novel series at Image Comics. I work on SpongeBob Comics, and I host the podcast Stuff Said. I'm going to introduce our illustrious panel, to my far right is Ryan Brown. I'll introduce you in a second, Joey. Uh, Ryan Brown is a uh, crazy idea factory. 
Uh, if you've ever read his book, God Hates Astronauts, you've seen it. Uh, and now he's working on Curse Words with Charles Sewell at Image, which continues uh, that fine tradition. Uh, welcome, Ryan Brown. Uh, uh, Joey Weiser uh, is the cartoonist behind Merman, the kids' graphic novel series from Oni Press. Eisner nominated, correct? Did it win one? No. Oh, sorry. Uh, but nominated. I haven't been nominated for one of those. Um, it is about a merman uh, and his undersea adventures and his adventures on Earth. It's a five graphic novel series, and it's excellent. Uh, Ulysses Farinas. I hit that right. The Enye. I got it. Well, Farinas. In, in English, just say Farinas. Yeah, but I... Farinas. <laughs> No, but if you're going to say it in Spanish, you say Farina. Okay. This is Farina. Works on Judge Dredd. <laughs> and his series Motro, where he explores a unique world uh, with hyper-rendered, mega-detailed art, which we will talk about shortly. Uh, Megan Levins uh, brings her unapologetically cartoony artwork to books like Madame Frankenstein, Spell on Wheels, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, the last but not least... Uh, Alan Davis, a genuine legend in comics with memorable runs on Detective Comics, Captain Britain, Excalibur, Justice League, The Nail, and his awesome creation, Clandestine. So let's talk about the delights of Unreal in comics. Um, I'm going to start with Alan, but Ryan, you will chime in on this as well. Everybody's welcome to chime in. As a, a, a panel discussion. Okay, uh, I'm get ready to chime in. Nonsense has a, a strong root in British tradition, from Alice in Wonderland to Monty Python. Uh, your work alludes to some of that with the Crazy Gang, uh, things of that nature. Ryan, you certainly touch upon nonsense in your work. I think everybody, to some degree, is touching on it. Uh, the first question out of the gate is, how do you feel comics are particularly effective in delivering nonsense? Well, I, I suppose I'd dispute the word nonsense because um, it sounds critical. I, I always called um, things whimsical absurdity, that you knew what you were trying not to do by trying to do something different. I think with nonsense, it's, it's rubbish, basically. With, with um, comics, you have um, freedom that you don't have in a lot of other medium. Um, you can use abstract, surreal, all, ty all types of art side by side. Often when you see um, other fo forms of media, they limit themselves to one specific thing. But with comics, you can do lots of different things together. And that juxtaposition creates that possibility for, uh, like I say, a whimsical absurdity where you can do something that's deliberately different for an effect but you're in control. It's not that it's rubbish or it's out of control. You can actually control the differences. And it's the fact that you can do... Um, I mean, w when I uh, was doing a life-drawing class, um, an art teacher used to criticise comics all the time. And um, I did a drawing for him of, um, of a guy pulling his shirt open with comic art instead of the Superman logo. And at his feet was um, a tombstone with expressionism, surrealism, and all the different arts. And the tombstone that was outside Bruce Lee's studio, which said, um, in memory of a once fluid man crammed and distorted by the classical mess. Because that was how I seen comics is anything goes. 
and that, that's why I say it's not nonsense it's just full of possibilities the only um, restriction is your imagination or your willingness to put in the effort I think that's a nice transition to Ulysses and Ryan in terms of putting stuff on the page that is limitless uh, certainly Motro, the world you've built there and the world in God Hates Astronauts um, when you're approaching it do you put limits on yourself, or is it really sky's the limit? I'm going to make the, the Earth a cube. I'm going to have a tiger piloting a spaceship eating a cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. Like where where? I guess I I, I do put limits where because I will write a lot of like encyclopedia entries. So I have like a a WordPress, which is my private encyclopedia for my world, and I just stay up really really late and write like like bullshit. <laughs> you know, but but like. Later on, when I'm writing the story, like I kind of put the world building to the side, and I see like what actually serves the story and what does it, and then. But I, I do have like a kind of like, I guess, analytical way of creating. Uh, you know, a lot of times people describe Mocho as like kind of surrealist, but for me, it's like I'm not. It's not really surrealist. Like, so what would you call it? I don't know. I just think like a dragon is just as impossible as a talking motorcycle. I, I know, would agree. So sure. I guess that's how I look at it. Yeah, Ryan. Um, yeah, for me, I, I I always try to build like a logic to the world, um, and uh, you know, a lot of people think what I'm doing is very very random. I mean, people say that my stuff is very random, but it's it's more stream of consciousness and. It's important for me to figure out a reason why it all makes sense together instead of just saying, wouldn't it be funny if someone turned into a shoe? Like, no, it, it wouldn't. But <laughs> if there was a whole reason why they needed to become a shoe, that's, that, that's where it becomes more interesting. And the whole premise that I've always played off of is um, I create wor- worlds where everything is absurdist, but nobody seems to notice. And in that that makes a comedy super easy where nobody has a sense of humor and no one seems to understand that anything is out of place. Um, and so then if you bring in one character who is the kind of proxy for the audience and they are like, what the hell's going on here? This guy just turned to a shoe. And everyone's like, yeah, of course he did. He needed to become a shoe because he wanted to touch a foot of a runner. And that was the only way he could do it. Like that makes perfect sense. Um, so I try to have some sort of, even when, and m- most of the stuff that I come up with is based off of that's the thing that I want to draw, and I think it's um, maybe I'll start with a joke and I'll figure out how it gets there, and um, usually all the motivations that I have for my characters is extremely serious. Um, they really need to do the thing that they need to do, and um, it's like a pretty simple concept and I just do it over and over again and no one seems to notice or if they do they're nice and they don't say anything well it almost strikes me as you know people speak of and I mentioned it before Alice in Wonderland as being uh, trippy and makes you know it's nonsense and it's it, it's just a, a bunch of stuff but if, if you read it it there is a logic to it it works like a dream there are allusions to uh, politics of the time so there's, there's a logic and a, a groundedness and a realism behind the absurd and the surreal I yeah, yeah. As long as long as you have a, a structure or a logic that is presented to the audience and and they get on board with that, then you can you can go anywhere you want. I and mean, it's like Ulysses said, it's like a, 
a, a dragon or a talking motorcycle like what's the difference sure um in terms of like like how far can you push your invention where someone goes that's absurd i'm not coming along with you um and so i definitely like the book curse words i'm doing now is a lot more grounded and, and a lot less absurdist than god hates astronauts whereas god hates astronauts was i just want to draw these things so i'm going to figure out how how to get to these places in the story um but yeah i don't know that's why comics are great all right um now joey you do comics primarily for younger readers yes uh and i have noticed that the popular movement at the time for kids' books in the book market, which is outside of comic book stores, mm-hmm. is for uh, autobiography, slice of life, or nonfiction. Yeah. So, how do you find the experience of doing make 'em ups? <laughs> and, and the audience of kids, which typically, for a long time, comics were perceived as for kids, and I, I still think they're pretty good for kids. Um, how has that experience been for you, and what, what buttons do you push on the make believe side to help you tell your stories that? are real stories with stakes and, and real uh, circumstances. Yeah. I mean, I guess along those these same lines, I don't worry too much about uh, confining myself to rules. Um, and I have to kind of fight myself with that sometimes. I'll start, like, thinking, like, so it's a, it's the last few books are all taking place in this undersea kingdom, and there's some stuff that's happening at the, sort of, like, the bottom of the ocean floor and stuff, and I start questioning like oh would the water pressure be too much for the characters or like <laughs> do the humans have enough oxygen in their tank and then it's like okay well actually why don't i just like not worry about that and write what's fun and like worry about like creating an entertaining story and cuz you know uh you know, water levels of video games are the worst levels because all you're worrying about is, like, if you're going to run out of air or whatever. And so I, I just was like, I'm going to just write something that's fun. Uh, and, and, and what I've found is that the more fun uh, I have with it and the less I worry about stuff like that, the more fun my readers have. And so, yeah, the response to Merman's been very positive, and I think that's because uh, I've been trying to have as much of a like kind of somewhat carefree outlook creating so, it so as possible. So you haven't had one smart alecky kid say, hey, how come they're able to breathe for so long? <laughs> uh, I, I'm waiting for that day. But, and I don't know what the gentle way of saying, like, who cares, kid? But like, <laughs> You tell them, go read Motro. <laughs> yeah. uh, Megan, uh, you have worked on a number of books that sort of uh, balance between a realistic sort of setting and your artwork is particularly cartoony, whether it's Madame Frankenstein, which tells a pretty intense story <laughs> of, of male and female dynamics, or Spell on Wheels, which is a uh, lady witch road trip, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you've also worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I want to sort of touch on that, because you are literally drawing real people. Your style is, as I've heard you mention in interviews, cartoony, unapologetically so, and I'm, I love hearing that. Um, <laughs> So what is that experience like? And to that end, uh, if, if Ryan, who has a character in, his, in God Hates Astronauts that is based on Reginald Bell Johnson, the actor, and Alan, you drew the Spider-Man movie adaptation, uh, which had some degree of likeness. Uh, but Megan, start us off. The experience of uh, your work telling arguably more grounded stories 
with your cartoonier style? What, how do you find uh, your style brings an advantage and tells those stories better than somebody that would really bring that realistic thing to it? Well, I, I, I hate to knock anybody who does photorealistic likenesses. Knock them. <laughs> but I feel like for me doing Buffy and then also really recently uh, Star Trek Boldly Go, I try to design a cartoon character that hits likeness points so you immediately read who it is, but I don't want to be held down to a specific still photograph because I want my character to be able to move through this world I'm drawing from all angles and I want to be able to draw every emotion they're feeling without being like, okay, can I find a picture of Sarah Michelle Gellar making this face? Sure. You know, or can I find a picture of, of Zachary Quinto you know, with the exact eyebrow raise from the exact angle, you know, you have to, so these, these aren't perfectly nailed likenesses, but you know, you look at a drawing I've done of Buffy and you're like, well, that's Buffy. It's not Sarah Michelle Gellar, but it's Buffy or that's Spike and that's Spock. That's Uhura. And in the job of cartooning, you push the expressions. You you sort of uh, draw things larger than life. Do you ever get any kind of pushback? Like, Hey, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar wouldn't make that face. Or do people understand what you're doing? and say, you're nailing it, the, the drama is heightened because of what you're bringing to the table. Yeah, I've never gotten any, any comments on the expression too much, and I, I feel like I really like pushed it a lot, especially with uh, Carl Urban in, in the new Star Trek series, because everything for his performance as Bones comes through his eyebrows and his <laughs> snarls, and I like really wanted to, to push that. It's usually just if an actor is particularly sensitive about a certain part of their face, you've got to be careful how you present it. Sure. Chris Pine's eyebrows. <laughs> Wait, he gets upset? I don't know if he does, but uh, the licensors kept telling me, you got to tone down the pine brows. <laughs> wow. So, now I want to make, like, stick-on pine brows and sell them at conventions. <laughs> um, I just had a thought and it escaped my head. So I'm going to go to another thought. Which, I, I, I yeah. wanna, like, yes, please. I always find that weird with, uh, like, Star Trek and certain... When you see like adaptations of stories, it's like Star Trek isn't about Chris Pine playing Kirk. Yeah, it's, it's about, about Kirk, Kirk, and Kirk yeah. isn't a real thing. Yeah, you know, Kirk doesn't have to look like Chris Pine or even yeah. William Shatner. It's like yeah. they definitely make those characters more larger than life when you're yeah. watching them on stage, but you're still watching them on stage. Yeah, you know, they're performing. And you as the artist are sort of stepping into that role. Yeah, like you're not putting on the costume or standing in front of a camera, yeah. but you're taking on the role of Buffy yeah. or Kirk or. It's a strange thing so. when you're when they're doing a comic of a not biographical subject. Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 Chris Pine is real. Yeah. Like, he is, he it's is like, Kirk, we know, but Kirk know? isn't. He goes to space. <laughs> so, to, this, this is, I heard this story, and Alan, you can confirm this story for me. When you were working on the Spider-Man movie adaptation, uh, as I understand that you drew J. Jonah Jameson... Who's played? I'm blanking on the guy who played him in the movie. Who can help J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, who looked like the drawings. Like yeah. he was done up to look like the drawings. Mm-hmm. And as I understand, they, uh, you got some pushback because your Jane Jameson looked like J.K. Simmons, though you were drawing J. Jonah Jameson. Is that an accurate <laughs> telling of that story? Um, I, I don't know what the story is you heard, but I can tell you what happened. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I was asked, did I want to do the Spider-Man movie adaptation? And my first answer was, absolutely not. And then they said, Stanley's going to write it. And I says, I'm there. Because the idea of working on a Stanley script, I'm a big fanboy, so I was in and hooked. And unfortunately, that was where the problem started. <laughs> because I thought I'd be drawing the uh, regular comic books, uh, Spider-Man, so uh, that was fine. 
But then they said, no, we want you to do likenesses. So they sent me <coughs> hundreds of photographs, and I drew these likenesses and got them all, I thought, spot on. Sent them in. Uh, Marvel was very happy with them. Marvel sent them to the film company, and the film company says, no, you can't do likenesses because we've got to pay the actors. You've got to... So then I said, does that mean I can go back to the comic book version? They said, no, we want you to go somewhere between. <laughs> so, so I said, so what you want me to do is basically make it look like I can't do proper likenesses that I've got to do. <laughs> and they said, well, if you can get it so that it kind of looks like the person, but not too much like the person, that we've yeah. got to pay them some sort of royalty. So that was the position that I was put in. But I don't, like I said, I was hooked to doing the Stanley script. I had the Stanley script, and I wasn't going to not do it. And then I really just did this balancing act where Toby Maguire is difficult to draw because he's got a bit of a potato face. That <laughs> um, J.K. Simmons is easy to do because he's got a very distinctive look. So there's always that thing with likenesses that it's easier to caricature people who have some sort of strong features. Um, someone who's got a, a less defined face is always more difficult to draw. And I kind of view the potential of comics as being... At one end, very open cartoon. At the other end, very photographic reality. And you can move anywhere between that sort of frequency of options. And um, the, uh, the thing that I always loved about American comics is that they could combine the best of both. Because to me, cartooning is emotional reality. It's about drawing the expression and not worrying about whether it looks real. It's whether it feels real. So when you look at Disney cartoons, to me, that's they're drawing the emotional values they're not trying to make something look photographically real and i feel nothing when i see um artwork that's been laboriously traced from photographs or laboriously washed so that it looks like a photograph that's been digitized to look like it's been drawn which you know is something you can do in photoshop you just stick in a photograph and digitize it and it looks like someone's drawn it um i like the possibility of being able to do something cartoony when i need to and then make something more realistic when i need to and so the Spider-Man, that kind of happened by... by um, that was like a test of my beliefs uh, on the system, that I could do something that was cartoony and superheroish, and then shift over a bit to do something that was a little bit more realistic. And so there was things like where Tobey Maguire and uh, Cliff Robertson are in the car as Spider-Man and his uncle talking, of having to do it more real to the film, because if it was just two people that didn't look like that, there was no connection to the film. But then when it came to the action, people wanted to see Spider-Man. They didn't want to see... And obviously, in the film, it's not Tobey Maguire. It's often computer-generated films. So there is that sort of um, jump in between, as I say, this sort of, to my mind, this sort of a frequency between the cartoon possibilities and the photographic <coughs> limitations, which... I suppose people who like photographs don't see it as limitations. Um, <laughs> I just see that as being very restrictive to try and get things right because you can do it with... The more realistic you get, the more refined the drawing needs to be. When you do a very subtle painting, you can get the reality. But when you're doing crude drawings, it's crude drawings. So you have to go to the crudest accuracy of the emotion or the expression or the movement or the action. That, that brings up a, a, an interesting topic, which is comic book storytelling. Um, Eric Larson has often pointed out that you know, people compare comics to movies and that there's a distinction in that a movie, you cannot break the frame. The movie frame exists and it exists in that space, whereas with comics, you can manipulate the frame. It doesn't have to be a rectangle. You can break out of it. You can do things to the 
the actual layout of a page, uh, which, again, for everybody walking around, we all exist, we see things in a, in a scope. The comments, you can manipulate that scope. And I kind of just want to open it up to talk about how you approach a page, how you approach your storytelling in a way to not make it storyboards, which seems to be a trend that I think leads to relatively boring comics. The pacing maintains the same. It doesn't, it doesn't do what comics really do beautifully, which is lead the reader along, giving the reader opportunities to sort of fill in the blanks and, and participate in the storytelling. So who wants in? This one's open-ended. I'll, I'll go. I'll All right. Um, the, other, the other thing that uh, movies do that comics can't do or do differently is the way we perceive sound. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, when, when there started becoming a lot of adaptations of comics into movies, they decided that comics had to read like they were a movie, and so they got rid of thought balloons and sound effects in a lot of comics, and I felt like that was severely detrimental to the art form because I would always feel like I was reading like a silent film like it just was crazy silent to me when i would read these these books um and it also never made any sense because you also don't have speech balloons in movies um so the logic like fell apart immediately for me and so for me i i went in the complete opposite direction and i i really love using sound effects to describe what's happening and describe the the experience uh of of the action in the panel um but in terms of the storytelling and how comics really vary for me from movies is that you can really control the pace of the story based on your composition and the amount of panels that you have. Um, and when you, you can also have large panels that um, can really like let the story breathe, or you can have a lot of smaller panels that will move, um, will like slow down time. Uh, in a way that you, I mean, you can do lots of different tricks in film, but it's it's very unique to what you can do in comics. Um, and my favorite part of comic storytelling is um, you set up the before and you set up the after. Like your two panels are like an action and a reaction, and then in between, uh, the story is actually the action is being completed in your mind as you read the two panels and figure out what. Uh, like so, everyone has their own interpretation of what is happening uh, in a comic based on, you know, you get two periods of time and then you you fill in in the middle. Um, but I love the page turn in comics and especially in in comedy, um, because you have a build up on every uh, page of how the story is progressing, and then when you flip the page, it's a completely like fresh reveal. Um, and you can use that to hit really hard on a joke or on action or sadness or horror. Um, and that's one of my favorite things that comics have that uh, movies don't have. Uh, I mean, they have their own ways of doing that kind of stuff. But it's really great to design stories based on what, how a page ends and how the next page begins. That's, that's interesting you mentioned because you mentioned horror and sound. And sound is a huge part of horror movies. The, the, the audio cues, you watch Friday the 13th, you hear that ch 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 yeah. And that tells you. So, Megan, you did Madame Frankenstein, yeah. which is a horror of a fashion. Yeah, very. Uh, and and <laughs> very you use page turns very effectively to sort of get you to where yeah. you're going. So, can we? Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how you approach horror without the benefits of sound, violin crescendos, and those sorts of things? 
I well definitely since Madame Frankenstein was set in the 1930s and I was pulling from the classic Universal monster movies, I I looked to how they composed the scenes and how they would drop foreshadowing and hints of of the horror and how they'd frame a shot to kind of create a little bit of that tension when you didn't have you know the soundtrack like the violins kicking in or right. the creepy. You know, buzzsaw noise. <laughs> so it, it you you rely a lot more on what you're seeing or not seeing, and uh, again, it comes through also in the expressions. Like when someone sees something horrifying, I really had to sell the terror in their face because right. another another thing I loved about the Universal movies is that they weren't really gory. You know, even though Madame Frankenstein has a fair amount of, of grisly scenes, the, the horror in those movies came through the emotions of the actors and through what was happening in the story. So I, I tried to play off of those cues. All right. And then, Ulysses, you use uh, iconography quite a bit. So you'll have a, a word balloon with a symbol in it. Yeah. Um, which I think is great. And again, it's a true uh, use of comics, yeah. right? No other medium can... Maybe, maybe a cartoon can, but even a cartoon is moving at a pace that the cartoon determines. Mm-hmm. So with, with your books, you can actually stop yeah. and assess. And your pages are so uh, uh, rendered, right? Like, people would call it realistic, but it's not, right? It's, no. it's hyper-real. It's, it's beyond... Well, like, the uh, backgrounds will often be more realistic, but the foreground, like, the characters are very... Kind of like Tintin. Yeah. Right? Like yeah, the backgrounds are, are very grounded and realistic, but then there's a character up front whose head is a box. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, the car, the vehicles have eyes and those little icon balloons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so clearly that's a tool you're using. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, how did you come to that? You know, talk yeah. about that. Well, I, I think of the balloon itself as an icon. You know, so... In one of uh, my Motro comics, a ca- character is being spied on while speaking to someone, but from like a different angle than what we originally see them. So when you're when they spy on them, you now see the thought balloon, the speech bubble from an angle. So all the <laughs> all the lettering is all slanted, and it's like, you know, it's just like because in a, in a movie you would see the character's lips moving, and you'd have an indication of like I can kind of make out what they're saying, but. I, so I wanted that same idea of, like, they're talking, but they're too far away, and they can't really see their lips. Yeah. So you see... And I think of the, the you know, speech bubble, the thought balloons, even captions, they don't have any uh, equivalent in prose or in film. There's nothing like that. Right. The closest is a voiceover. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like, when you can play with those elements and even, like use them to enhance the story, I think that's really effective. And I remember one time I experimented with drawing um, a comic where all the panels, the ones that were most important, were closer to the viewer. Like, they were, like, iso- isometrically designed. Right. It didn't actually work, though. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> but it was just something to try. I sometimes was like, you could push a thing, and then you lose that clarity of storytelling. Exactly. And, and at the end of the day, we're trying to tell stories and communicate ideas and emotions and reactions, and if you if you get too caught up in the in the tricks and, and in the design and design, yeah, uh, that can get lost. And some people, like you know, like Chris Ware, will are like masters of playing with design and still being clear storytellers. Right. Where it's just like it's almost like hard to even separate it from being a purely design object and also being a story. And I think that's really you know really effective and Absolutely. educational. Uh, now, Joey, yeah. of the panel, your work is, is on the spectrum that Alan was describing of, of 
highly cartoony to highly realistic. You are on the farthest to the highly cartoony side. Oh, okay. Right? I mean, you are you are drawing uh, closer to Disney style cartoon sure. characters than the rest of the panel. Uh, so that in and of itself is a primary tool of comics. Mm-hmm. It is it is not representative of humanity except that they have eyes, mouths, nose, hands, mm-hmm. arms. Because uh, I think you're drawing the three fingers and a thumb, right? You go full cartoon on the hands. Humans have four fingers okay. and a thumb. But... Merman's got three and a. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, how do you do? You find that that is, I mean, aside from, well, I don't know if it's easier to draw. It's not. It's a whole different animal, right? You have to build your constructions from, from scratch. Basic shapes. Yeah. You know, I, I think yeah. Once I get into designing the like mer people characters or like monsters for other comics and stuff like that it's um even more so than constructing like different shaped human beings like i like to build off of basic shapes and start from there and i can come up with more interesting designs and things that don't necessarily have to follow rules and things like that um and then in terms of the storytelling tools, we've talked about thought balloons and sound effects and those sorts of things. Are there any tools that you find particularly effective or useful for the stories you're telling? Because uh, you're doing stuff underwater, you're doing yeah. stuff above land. Are you, are you doing? Are there any comic tricks you're using in, in, <laughs> in separating those worlds? Uh, some, Color, a, maybe? A, a thing that I thought about, um, this is small, but something that uh, crossed my mind as we were talking about this stuff is that the, uh, there's a human character named Pete, uh, and that's P-E-T-E, uh, and as he visits these undersea worlds that don't have any uh, normal interaction with uh, our world, uh, the undersea characters uh, refer to him by spelling his name P-E-A-T, and I've had people ask me before, is that pronounced differently? And uh, I honestly don't know. Like, it doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is the communication of the idea that uh, there's the separation between them and that they don't, uh, they aren't familiar with our society and stuff like that. That's cool. Um, yeah, and that's, that's a neat bit of business. I, I like I like a lot of little like lettering tricks like that. Um, that partially comes from Japanese comics where they can do things where they'll have words and then spell out a separate but similar word next to it and you can kind of get a double meaning that way and things like that. Nice. Um, I'm going to shift the conversation now to character design a bit uh, and I'm going to start with Alan and ask about a specific character. Uh, in your book, Clandestine, the characters are all beautifully designed. One of them in particular is distinct and that is Dominic, whose uh, superhero uh, circus name is Hex. If you guys have not seen this character, um, if you're familiar with the Creeper, it's sort of like the Creeper dialed up. Um, his, cost, his, his unitard is a series of circles with like green and sort of, I don't even know, fluorescent is the wrong word, but it's like phosphorescent. And then he has a, what's that? Clamorous. Clamorous. And then he has a cape that is, is like feathers, and, and those are kind of, uh, phosph- like phosphorescent is a word that keeps coming to mind. He's got, he has a, a, a makeup and wig that sort of resembles a, a, a man who fell to earth. It, it's not makeup. <laughs> oh, not, right. he's, he's very pale and he has yes, red hair. Because he lives in the... In the, uh, the he's, he's, super, he's hypersensitive to everything. Yeah, so that, he his, 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 his ability is that he feels everything to the nth degree, so if he eats chocolate, he passes out from right. pleasure. 
So and um, <laughs> yeah, he, he stays out of the sunlight because he, he just can't take sunlight. So was, he's, yes. he's, his skin is actually coloured sort of greenish in the comic, but that's because if you have a white person, they've got to have some sort of tone. Right. And they, they go with a sort of a. It was meant to be sort of blue, but it's gone green, and I didn't mind. <laughs> no, it's, it's a beautiful design, and I just wanted you to sort of talk on how you came to that design, your approach to it. Well, you, you've kind of covered it yourself by saying it's a Dicko-esque design because what I did uh, with the clandestine, um, having worked in comics for some time, realised pretty much everything that's been designed, uh, pretty much every possibility of what can be designed had been designed within the narrow confines of the superhero market. Um, when Jack Kirby started doing superheroes, it was like a, a field of snow that was untouched, and he just jumped around everywhere. <laughs> and he, 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 he produced maybe as much rubbish as, as much good stuff, but people remember the good stuff. And the people that have followed have had to try and find a new patch if they want to do something new or uh, to use what he, he created. And um, to me, to, I don't believe in real creativity. I believe in discovery that the options are there, and we find them that if we don't find them, someone else will find it. So when someone says, oh, they stole my idea, I think, no, the idea was there. <laughs> they got to it first. And um, that's what happened with Kirby. He was there first on so many different levels. So when I came to design a group, I knew that I couldn't do anything that was going to be revolutionary different. So I designed the whole family, because it was about a family that lived for a very long period of time, that each... Uh, group, uh, each member of the group represented a different era of comics so Rory and Pandora who were the children and very naive were based on Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes so that there was that sort of childish innocence and they looked like they were from the 50s um, Kay wore a lopsided angular design which was a little bit based on some of the 70s characters that didn't survive very long because none of them were very good and um, Walter was clearly the Hulk, you know, one of the old characters. It was just that he was blue, and I kind of mixed it up with some of the Tibetan um, fire demons and things so that his hair turned to fire when he was really angry and he got bigger and he developed tusks and things. So, But he was essentially the Hulk, but blue. And when, when it came to uh, Vex, it was just a case of saying... Um, how can I do something that's like Ditko? Because when the Creeper came along, it was so totally radical that although he'd done Craven the Hunter with a mane and he'd done other characters with weird patterns, you know, that Kirby and Ditko both had a design sensibility that was about wrapping a pattern around a human form. That's the essence of what they did. And Kirby had a more pop art approach to doing it whereas um, Kirby's was more um, architectural which you can see in Galactus and there was a, a stripes and bands and things looping that it was very mechanical in a way though, that he put things together, um, sort of geometric and organised and Ditko was the complete antithesis of that which you can see in so many Doctor Strange characters and so when I came to, uh, to design that costume, if you look at Clear's uh, leggings and Doctor Strange you'll see that there's the pattern that he often uh, eliminated body lines there was no knees, there were no muscles he would just draw the leg shapes and then they would stick a pattern in there and so that was, that was what I did so I basically ripped Ditko off as you say <laughs> and it was just I added a lot more detail that Ditko did something very simple and I did something which took a lot longer to draw and did you regret having to re redraw that costume over and over in any capacity? 
Um, no, because you can always drop a character into shadow if it's getting to be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> the magic of comics. There it is. Um, anybody else want to talk about their character designs or things that they have uh, pieced together? Yeah, well, I'm doing this book called uh, Guardian Force Design Manual. And it's all about just like Power Rangers, Kamen Rider type uh, characters, but at, from a design sense of breaking down what actually, what do they look like? And you go, you know, you go from like the early history, from like the 19, I think, 40s or so to now, and you see like these, you know, repeating patterns. Like Common Rider always has these big bulbous eyes, and other characters will have these visors, and you you discover like there's like only about 20 faces, you know, and there's like all these different elements, but you can really go through a whole history of like a genre and see, wow, we've only been messing with these, and you see that also in superhero comics. It's like there's Every new like superhero universe always has someone that looks like Batman. Yeah. There's always someone <laughs> who, and you know, like then like you sometimes see something gets created out of whole cloth, like Wolverine's cow that never existed. You know, like that weird look with the hair thing. Yeah. It's just yeah. like no one has hair like that, and when <laughs> someone drew that almost by accident, and now it's a comic thing. Yeah. You just. But just, uh, did, did it really start like that, Wolverine? Wolverine's evolved, the cow evolved. Mm-hmm. If you see the first time, it didn't look like that. It was more like Batman. Yeah, and over like the years, Because when John Byrne started to draw Wolverine, that's when it got really big. <laughs> and, and I could never figure out how to draw it because it stuck out this way and yeah. it stuck out that way. Yeah. And it had to be yeah. like this. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it exactly. Be. It's one of those things that when people say, like, how can, you know, why doesn't Hugh Jackman wear it in the... In the like, how does it exist it in doesn't three actually, dimensions? It doesn't actually work in three dimensions. Because, yeah. like, is it flat? Yeah. Or does it go completely around to the back? Yeah. Well, I always thought if it rained... You'd have like these big puddles. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it, and that's one of the things of like the, the yeah. common design of Wolverine is just like it's very sense. iconic and also doesn't make sense. Yeah, but it's completely unrealistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, though it brings a question: Wolverine's hair. What came first, that or uh, Beast's blue form? I don't know the history well enough. Does anyone know which one came first? I think Wolverine's hair. Did it? Because Beast I, I, was originally like the right, but he turns blue. I don't know. It must have been very close. Yeah. Because yeah. Wolverine started in an issue of the Hulk, but you didn't see him without, without, his, without yeah. his mask. Yeah. That was onto X Men. Right. Um, I think it might. I think it might have been the Beast. I'm not sure. But I, I'm not sure in the original it, Beast whether he actually had that stylized hair because it was when the X Men book had been cancelled. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I think they did a, a couple of issues where he became the Beast. It wasn't in the X Men comic, yeah, was it? Right. It was in one of those Marvel things. Marvel Adventures, or yeah, I think it was yeah. Marvel yeah. Adventures or Marvel something, Marvel action like stories, those team or ups, like the Marvel yeah. team ups. Right, he was yeah. gray and then he went blue. I should know this. Yeah. I like the Beast. I should yeah. know his history better. And both their hairs kept getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. You know? And by like the 90s, it was just like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Know, like, it was like a hazard in yeah. fights. I always thought someone was going to grab Wolverine by yeah. his hair. Then they made that like that Strife character, and they're like, let's make it metal now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, it's like it's such the same idea. Just like the giant up. ultimate uh, cow look. Triangle head. Yeah. yeah. Now, Megan, your character designs tend to be people in clothes. Yeah. Uh, so, So... Where do you get to play around and, and push the unrealistic? Or for the stories you're doing, is the grounding in the characters and the stuff that happens around them sort of like the straight man and the, and the, the comedy guy in a duo? Yeah, I think uh, well, it, there's a lot of opportunity for character design even in everyday clothes. Like you look around you, especially at a Comic-Con, everyone's got their own unique sense of style that indicates their personality. Mm-hmm. And 
So, you know, for Buffy, since obviously it's set in present day and, but you know who these three, you know, like, let's say Dawn and Willow and Buffy, you know their personalities. I kind of knew what their fashion style was, so I would go online and look at, at clothing websites and be like, okay, that's so Willow, and, you know, download the picture and be like, I have a file on my computer of clothes that are all Willow styles, so like, just mm. pull from that. If the scene changes and she needs to be wearing something different or... If they're, I drew them in scuba gear recently, and I was like, well, Faith would probably wear something sleeveless to show off her, her arms, and she wouldn't be upset about being cold scuba diving in San Francisco, and Buffy would be like, yeah, no, and have <laughs> be fully covered. She's like, I'm wearing a wetsuit, come on. <laughs> so there's a lot of things you can do, even when you're drawing a real human wearing everyday clothes, you can do something to indicate who they are. And, you know, again, with Madame Frankenstein... Uh, the clothes that uh, the lead character Gail would wear are all something that her creator has projected on her, and mm. then clothes that she would choose for herself would be different. Right. So, well, f- following on from that, there was, there was, you know, I agree completely. There, there was um, one costume that I've always really liked was uh, John Romita Jr.'s version of Rogue. Yes. Mm-hmm. When she had the black body stocking yeah. and a, a rotating. Uh, green mix of different types of underwear that you yeah. felt like she just phoned up Victoria's Secret and give me one of everything green yeah. and it just constantly changed and so it was almost like um, her mood yeah. or just something different and it was a, a great costume because it was the fact that it was a non-costume yeah. mm. but still had the yeah. tropes of a costume, two colours well that's it, it was the yeah. two colours and it was a, a, always a black body stocking but everything else changed because at a certain point there was a shift to literal non-costumes. It was jackets yeah. and leather yeah. pants, and it's sort yeah, of you like lost the the punk punk storm like Mohawk but even storm. like yeah. But it sort of it, it sort of started with those X-Men movies. Like there yeah. became this shift to making things look like they looked on the movie and abandoning the, the beautiful things that superhero costumes could do. Batman's yeah. cape does things in a comic book that it cannot do outside of a cartoon. If you put Batman in body armor, he's not doing the things that I mean. To talk, Alan, about your Batman comics, he was. Batman, blue, gray, the whole nine yards. But then you would you would throw in touches of real. When he was swinging, his arms were under his body. He was holding his own weight, and you could see it in the drawing. But it still felt super heroic and majestic. Certainly well, in the nail, you, you do that. Well, the thing well. is, is, it was a very it was a very specific decision that I'd made. Um, was that when Batman sw- swung on a rope? And I mean, it's a ridiculous idea. This is when you, it is real nonsense. Is if you're swinging between skyscrapers and you've got a cape, you've basically got a wind sail on your back in a windy city. You're going to be smashed against the building. So you have to forget that. But when Batman's uh, sw- was swinging on his rope, I thought Batman should be using the rope as though it's just a crutch. He's almost flying. That he's so athletic. Whereas Robin mm. dangled yeah. from the rope, and his legs were all over the place. Mm. That he hadn't learned how to do it yet. <laughs> so that was why that came about. That I always tried to make Batman look as elegant as he possibly could when he was swinging, and Robin always looked as clumsy as I could possibly make him. And then one more thing on Batman is going to touch into realistic. There was a, another story that perhaps you can uh, shed light on. The first cover, the first part of Year Two, Batman is holding a gun. Yeah. And there's, there's a story of the gun that you drew and the gun that they wanted you to draw uh, and the conflict of the, the choice of gun. Is that accurate, uh, bad summation? Um, what, what happened was uh, Frank Miller had been doing year one with David Kelly, and they had one panel where Joe Chill uh, killed the Waynes. 
And it was a very small panel, very silhouettes, but it was clear you could see it was a Saturday night special. It was some sort of s- small gun. Mike Bard written the story that Batman had a Mauser. He wanted something big. Because in comics, when you draw in someone with enlarged hands so that they, they look like maces, having a little pop gun just looks ridiculous. <laughs> so he wanted a Mauser. So I'd drawn the cover with a Mauser, and he had a Mauser holster. But um, this is why I actually quit the book, is that I'd been trying to get in touch with Daniel Neal to say, look, this, this inconsistency is it possible to change the gun in that one panel of this Frank Miller, David Kelly thing, because I'm drawing this whole issue with a, with a Mauser. And he didn't reply to my phone calls. And so it went on for a whole month that he wouldn't reply. So I just, in the end, sent it off to the Inca, the Inca Ink at all. It went in. And then they, uh, they phoned me up just before Christmas and asked me to redraw all these pages because they wanted the gun changed. And I said, no, I'm not doing it, and basically quit on the spot because I'd been trying to alert them to this, and all they had to do was change one panel on another book, because they didn't do that. They wanted me to change, I don't know, it was like maybe four or five pages and a cover, uh, just because <laughs> the editor hadn't bothered to reply to a phone message. Yeah, comics. Communication yeah. is a key. <laughs> I think a lot of times one of the... I'm really okay with no continuity, like even in my own comics, it's just like if something changes, it's just like well that's what it was the whole time, okay like, and it's like I always find it really interesting, while some readers are very continuity heavy they need that for them to, in, to enjoy the book, and other readers like you know, like I'm particularly like I can pop into a story and pop out, like I don't really need to. and if something changes like the a gun, it's just like what serves the story right now that I'm reading, not necessarily what serves the story that I had read. You it's, know, also, like, it's also an opportunity to win a no prize. They don't, yeah, do, those, they don't do those anymore, but yeah. those used to be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I stopped worrying about continuity quite a while ago, um, and no one seemed to notice, or they didn't, no one said anything to me. Um, and I actually have a character uh, in God Hates Astronauts whose name is Time Giraffe. He's a, like a time-traveling giraffe. Um, but I intentionally draw his costume completely different in every single panel. Like, it's on the same theme, but, like, the shoulder pads are designed differently. Sometimes he's got, like, goggles. Other times he has a mustache. Like, just I put in little things here and there. Um, and no one has ever said anything to me about it. Like, I intentionally make him just a little bit different in every single panel. And I brought it up to people, and they have no idea what I'm talking about. Because they're just reading the story, and they're not... They're not they're not going... I mean, some people maybe go back and forth to, like, check up on you to make sure you're following the rules, but in general, it's just the story, and you want people to get lost in it and, and not be too bothered by that. Yeah, on the other end of that spectrum, like, on Buffy, since there's several different artists that'll be working on any season at any given time, like, as I was doing this one fill-in, I'm drawing one issue out of 12 for this season, and I'm on, like, an 150-message chain with George Janty and Rebecca Isaacs and uh, Freddie, our editor, and Christos Gage, and we're all, like, sharing all of our reference and mm-hmm. sketches and, like, okay, I drew the hotel room this way, so everyone make sure you draw it this way, and... Buffy's got a black eye for these issues or something. So, yeah, there's then there's the opposite side where you are several artists making sure everything is in step. <laughs> I remember, uh, what, I think one thing that frees you up from continuity is doing covers for your own book before you wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> where you're just, yes. You know, so if you're writing a book, you're like, you need, you know, they need the covers like three yeah. months ahead of time. I'm like, well, I'm only on this script. So I guess some of this is just made up 
like yeah. it might happen, it might not. I don't yeah. know if Judge Dredd's gonna get chased by cars. Yeah. I'll like, see when I get there. It's like DC Comics of the fifties or sixties, right? They yeah. did the covers first and figured it out from there. Yeah. <laughs> just make it up. And it's like yeah. I hope that kind of lines up. Joey, you were gonna chime in. Um, yeah, I think I think this is touching on something that we had been talking about a little bit earlier about how comics rely on the readers to uh, fill in gaps of information, and I think that that's why. Superhero movies with uh, live-action actors have to try harder to like prove to you that it looks okay, and then like, and then the more realistic the comic, the more you get into issues with like uh, continuity and stuff. And then with the more quote-unquote cartoony stuff, that's less of an issue. But like, when you start wondering like why is that, I think it is because the readers themselves are able to kind of like have a lot more wiggle room with that sort of simpler uh, art and, and, and story and stuff and are able to um, kind of accept these, these things because they're filling in a lot of gaps themselves. Well, it's, like a, it's like a booster on suspension of disbelief, right? Yeah. If you give people reasons to question a thing, they're going to find the question. If you keep making things more and more realistic, you're going to see, wait, that, that, it's that uncanny valley, right? Yeah. The closer you get to things being real, the more you see how unreal it is. Yeah. Whereas if you present something that is a cartoon, you accept the reality of that cartoon. You know, as yeah. we've all sort of touched on, it's like you're grounding, we're all grounding our stories in real emotions, real stakes, real things, but we're doing it in ways that, through comics, are not, you wouldn't be able to do those things yeah. in the real world. Yeah. That's yeah. the advantage of comics. And also, you know, just from my perspective of working on licensed things that are based off of filmed television, uh, there's also this seamlessness when you adapt that to a comic where obviously, you know, like you were discussing about the realism of the Spider-Man movie and then the cartoonishness and like a CG uh, Tobey Maguire, you don't have that separation in a comic between Tobey Maguire in a costume and a CG Spider-Man. It's the, there's this fluidity and seamlessness to the unreal aspects and these people you're basing off of actors. So. Well, I think an example of that is when you can have a cartoon character existing in the real universe in a comic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it can be unquestioned. And, um, you know, like in the, uh, the movie Stand By Me, where they're discussing whether uh, Superman would beat Mighty Mouse or whatever. Yeah. Right. You know, it's that, that kind of thing that you yeah. can have the two things existing in one reality. Yeah. And it's not, it's not chained down by whether the visual effects are going to look good enough but, but or whether th- the actor can react yeah. to it yeah I, I think it's it's the fact that in comics you can homogenize things to bring them together yeah. by using very simple tricks and um, I think Bill Sankovich once said that uh, Neil Adams could double light Charlie Brown to make him look photographically real <laughs> and it is this thing where you can learn certain lighting techniques that you can apply to any form and it immediately makes it plausible yeah yeah and I think a lot of times like the photo realism in comics almost takes you out of it and makes yeah. things less possible it's like yeah. a lot of times when I you know I remember reading like Kingdom Come and I'm just like this just doesn't seem as real because it looks more real it feels less real yeah. you know because it's just like oh I, I can believe Superman can fly when he's just like this hyper muscle underwear wearing man yeah. it's just like none of it makes sense so it all makes sense but when it's an actual physical photograph that's been painted it's just like well no I know that guy's like laying on a chair in someone's living room <laughs> yeah. you, you know yeah. and it's just like it takes me out of it when you guys, I see that yeah you're not seeing the characters moving you're just seeing a group of still photographs yeah. Yeah. yeah now we have five minutes left 
the time flies <laughs> when we're talking comics. Uh, I want to give everybody an opportunity to talk about uh, what you want people to know, uh, where you are at the show, what you have, uh, whatever you want. Everybody's got, there's five of you, you each get a minute. Who wants to start? Let's start on Brian, start us off. All right, cool. Hi. Um, uh, I am at table 1404. Um, I have been doing a new book called Curse Words with a writer named Charles Soule. Um, and it comes out from Image, and there are five issues out. It's monthly, um, and I have the images, uh, the issues at my table. But um, yeah, I don't know. Comics are cool. <laughs> Comics are cool. Yeah, if everybody can have a catchphrase at the end, yeah. that'd be fun. <laughs> oh, good. Um, yeah, I'm in Indie Island. Uh, I think it's 12:25. I'm facing the wall um, between Andy Runton and Brad McGinty. Um, and I have uh, all five of the Merman books, as I think we mentioned earlier. The fifth book recently came out, and it's the end of the series. Um, and I also have some prints and some mini comics and all sorts of stuff. So please come by and check it out. I'm Ulysses Farinas. Uh, my table is 1109. Um, I have a sticker that looks like a pug and a burger at the same time. Oh my God, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm Megan Levins. I'm at 11:27 in Artist Alley. I have original artwork. I'm drawing commissions, and I have copies of uh, Madame Frankenstein, Spell on Wheels, Angel City, Aries and Aphrodite, Buffy, Star Trek, and and I will show you pictures of my dog on my phone because <laughs> he's really cute. Alan. Um, I'm an artist alley. I don't know which table it's at. Um, <laughs> Seven oh one. Yeah, I, I don't have I don't have a dog, but my wife does have pictures of her grandchildren. If anyone wants to, see. <laughs> and uh, once this is finished, I'm going for lunch. Excellent. Uh, and I am Greg Schiegel. I'm at eleven twenty-five, so I'm sort of between Megan and Joey. Uh, I have copies of my Pix books. I have uh, original art from uh, SpongeBob comics, and. I'm doing sketches. Come on by. Say hi. Uh, thank you all for coming. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you to my panel, Ryan, Joey, Ulysses, Megan, Alan. Uh, I love having these kinds of conversations. Thank you all very much. See, that was fun, right? And I think everybody had a good time. I want to thank uh, the team at Heroes Con. They're all awesome, especially Andy Manzel, who runs the panels, and Matthew Tyndall, who secured me the recordings of said panels, and, of course, uh, the panelists, certainly. Uh, I have another recording from Heroes Con. I plan on releasing sooner than later. I'm just waiting on uh, one thing I need to cross-check. Um, and I recorded an actual one-on-one episode that is in the pipeline. So there are more stuff said to come uh, after, I know, a, a long absence. But this is what happens when I'm not hip-deep working on picks or without any specific deadline, which is the case right now, which makes, uh, makes for time to make new episodes not great for uh, paying bills, which is my not-so-subtle way of saying, hey... If you've enjoyed the show and haven't yet, 
consider a donation at stuffsaidshow.com where the full archive of episodes lives. They're all free. Or if you don't want to donate, buy copies of my books from wherever you want to buy books. Uh, but while you are at Stuff Said Show or pixcomic.com or hatterentertainment.com, my websites, sign up for my monthly email newsletter. Uh, on the first of every month, I write a thing. I talk about what's going on. It's like a podcast, but you read it and there are pictures. Uh, speaking of podcasts, I hope everybody enjoyed the last episode. It uh, was a different one, a unique one. It got some attention online, which resulted in a lot of new listeners. Hopefully some of you are still listening, maybe, uh, or you sought out old episodes and are listening back and catching up. Either way, welcome aboard if you are if you are still aboard. Um that last episode was an outlier, atypical for this show, but hopefully you will like the other stuff I'm doing over here. The Stuff Said theme is by Craig Chin, who lives online at rudeanagrams.com. For more about me, you can follow me on Twitter at my full name, G-R-E-G-G-S-C-H-I-G-I-E-L. You can sign up for that aforementioned email newsletter and visit hatterentertainment.com. That's about all the stuff I have left to say. I'll see you next time.